It's Wednesday, April 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. After tragedy struck in Sri Lanka, where three churches and four hotels were hit by suicide bombers on Easter Sunday, the Islamic State is now claiming responsibility, and officials say it might have been retaliation for last month's mosque attacks in New Zealand. There are also reports that Sri Lanka had been warned ahead of time about an impending attack, but did not act on the intelligence. Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor, joins us for what we know so far. Next, the business of donating human eggs can be very lucrative, with some agencies paying as much as $50,000 per cycle in some cases. But donors say it can be confusing to navigate the process and leaving some unaware of the risks. Often, the marketing doesn't match the experience. Paris Martineau, writer for Wired, joins us for a look into the egg donation industry. Finally, health experts have said that sitting too much or living a sedentary lifestyle can be hazardous to your health. Researchers wanted to quantify how much people are sitting and found that Americans are sitting more than ever, and the habits are starting young. Brianna Abbott, health reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how teens have become more sedentary than adults and computers may be to blame. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. All that we knew earlier was that there were foreign links and that this could not have been done just locally. What has happened is a breakdown of communication. If it was available, these groups were in charge of anti-terror would have acted much faster, would have acted. Joining us now is Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor. We're going to be talking about Sri Lanka and the tragedy that happened there on Easter Sunday, some suicide bombers hit three churches, four hotels, killing 321 people and wounding 500. It's always horrible to hear these types of stories, but we're getting a lot more information now that the days have passed. And one of the first things is that the Islamic State now is claiming responsibility, although they haven't offered any concrete evidence that they were behind it. What do we know about that so far? Right. So it took them two days to claim responsibility, but they have released a video that they say shows the bombers before the attack pledging their loyalty to the Islamic State. We don't have confirmation that that's what we're looking at in the video and the faces of all but one of the attackers is covered. So we don't have confirmation But we have heard both from the Sri Lankan government and from experts that there was likely some international coordination here from a group capable of pulling off more sophisticated attacks than the local actors that had been implicated. And so we were sort of waiting for an indication of where that help might have come from. And the Islamic State says that it was them. Part of the reasoning behind that is that six of the suicide bombers went off almost at the exact same time. So the coordination was beyond what that local group was capable of. And that's why they think they had outside help uh, leading them to you know, suspect Islamic State there. One of the other things that happened was officials in Sri Lanka were saying that it was possible that this could have been retribution for what happened in New Zealand, the terrorist attack that happened there when about 50 people were killed in the mosques there. What evidence do they have to support that? There is a cabinet official, I believe it was the defense minister in Sri Lanka, who put this theory out there. An attack like this oftentimes you would think it would take months to pull off. And that's what what experts say. This is not something that happens in a matter of weeks or or even five weeks, I guess, that we've had in between the Christchurch attacks 
and now. So likely, you know, this attack was likely to have been in the works. The, the idea that it was motivated by New Zealand seems unlikely. That is certainly something that if you are the Islamic State, you can put out there as an explanation and also a justification for this attack that is going to. Certainly a lot of people will see this and say there's no justification. But if you're the Islamic State, you can say Muslims are under attack around the world. And this is retribution for that. Again, we have no confirmation that that is what motivated this attack, but it is something that's floating around. A lot of reports are starting to surface that Sri Lankan intelligence officials were tipped off about an imminent attack that was going to be coming by Islamist militants. There's reports of these warnings coming as early as April 4th and even hours leading into the attacks. Some people are pointing to infighting between the Sri Lankan president and the prime minister as reasons why this information might not have been circulated enough. What do we know about these details? Almost immediately after the attack, we heard from the prime minister of Sri Lanka who said that he had heard retrospectively that intelligence had been shared with the president who was a rival of his and had not made its way to him or to to other people who could have taken action on this. We now do have confirmation from the president that there was intelligence that wasn't acted on. So basically everybody at the top levels in Sri Lanka is saying there was a breakdown, there was a failure here. The latest reporting I've seen is from CNN that Indian intelligence had actually picked up warnings from somebody that they had that they were holding there, and he had given some sort of warning that an attack was being planned in Sri Lanka. Again, apparently there were multiple warnings passed back and forth, and nothing was done. The Catholic Church in Sri Lanka is very upset about this. They say if they were warned, they would have told people to stay away from Easter services. What do we know about the group, the local group there, who was suspected of carrying out these attacks? People are saying that the leader of this group came to the attention of other Muslim leaders a few years ago for some of his incendiary speeches online. A lot of hate campaign stuff against all non-Muslims, basically saying, you know, non-Muslims have to be eliminated. What do we know about that group? Because they really just kind of seem to have come out of nowhere. When I saw the name of this group surface, I had never heard of them. And I wondered, you know, is this something that I've missed? And then I saw lots of people who follow terrorism quite closely and track these sort of things had never heard of them either. So this is a group that was hardly known inside Sri Lanka and was certainly not known internationally before this attack, which is, again, one of the reasons why people thought there must have been outside help. And Sri Lanka does not historically have a problem with Muslim extremism. And there's been lots of commentary on the fact that the Christian minority and the Muslim minority, again, these are both minority religions in Sri Lanka, which is a predominantly Buddhist country, that they had gotten along relatively well. So that's one of the concerning things here that you now have this sort of new fault line in Sri Lanka, which is a very divided country, potentially now between Muslim extremists and the Christian community. Thank you very much, Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor. Thank you. Though it's technically called a donation in the U.S. when eggs change hands, money usually follows. A first-time egg donor will typically make about $8,000 in the low end for donating her eggs, with that payment rising to 10000 for a second and even more the more donations you do. Joining us now is Paris Martineau, writer for Wired. We're going to be talking about the lucrative business of donating human eggs. Just a quick personal story. I had a friend when we were in high school who was thinking about how she was going to be paying for college. She told me that this was on her radar, something that she was thinking about doing. 
And she said, but there was all sorts of drawbacks. She didn't know how it would affect her health. But obviously the money was the big thing among her decisions to want to do it. She could potentially be making thousands and thousands of dollars. So the story you wrote up is just about how women can potentially be making a lot of money on this. But there's very little information for the donors and how it would affect their bodies and how there's chat groups that even work now on how to report the payments on their tax returns. So tell us a little bit about this business of donating eggs. Just as you said, I spoke to a couple of different CEOs of egg donation agencies here in the U.S., and the one thing they repeated multiple times is that almost all of the women who end up participating in egg donation are college students or master's students trying to finance their education or someone trying to pay back some student loans, which, first of all, is a rather dystopian picture of this industry. But I guess to start from the basics, egg donation is designed to help families who are having trouble conceiving. It's take eggs from one woman fertilize the viable ones and then transfer them to a recipient in the hopes of achieving pregnancy. But in practice, it's a lot more complicated than that, especially for the donors themselves who are the ones that are going this procedure and are often, they say, being left in the dark about a lot of the different risks or side effects in regards to this procedure. Tell us how much money women can stand to make. There's anything from about eight to $10,000, all the way up to about $50,000 a cycle if people want to get into this. Though it's technically called a donation in the U.S. when eggs change hands, money usually follows. A first-time egg donor will typically make about $8,000 in the low end for donating her eggs with that payment rising to 10000 for a second and even more the more donations you do. However, women who have certain in-demand traits like a high IQ or Ivy League education, model-esque features particular sought after ethnic backgrounds or skills, these women are routinely offered anywhere from 20000 to $50,000. A number of the agency staff members that I spoke with specifically mentioned that women with Jewish, East Asian, or Indian heritage will often get paid even more than that because that's particularly in demand. It all sounds very good. You can help a family get a child of their own uh, for the donor you get a lot of money in it, especially if you have these desirable traits and you can make a deal on, on exactly what you're going to be paid. But the marketing doesn't always equal the experience. A lot of women go into it not really knowing some of the side effects or how their bodies are going to react to this. And you profiled a few women in this, but one of them specifically, her ovaries were painfully swollen. She experienced weight gain, abdominal pain, nausea, trouble urinating. And, and one girl in particular had to be hospitalized. Let's talk a little bit about some of these side effects that can happen. Donors say that the process is really confusing and frightening, and they feel often isolated, unaware of the risks, because none of the ads or marketing material generally mention these sort of risks. And egg donation as a medical process has been really under-researched. There are essentially no long-term studies about the effect that this process, which involves injecting yourself multiple times a day with hormone-filled syringes, and you have to do that for at least 10 days or more until a doctor pierces your vaginal wall with thick needles to suck out all the extra eggs. And that takes quite a toll on women's bodies. But the reality is that, especially in the US, where this is an extremely popular procedure, there isn't that much concise information out there for donors from the perspective of donors. Most of the 
information or groups you see out there are about parents, the sort of people who are paying for these sort of things or people who are going through IVF. But donors have very little control in the process that is happening to them and thus need more information if they're going to get into this. And I mean, what has ended up happening is in response, uh, a lot of donors have joined private Facebook groups to kind of share these nitty gritty details and console each other and give advice about how best to deal with this complicated experience. In the groups, the sort of things they talk about range from like how best to deal with the pain of your ovaries filling to the size of grapefruit to how to take your bag full of injection hormone needles <laughs> on a plane without TSA freaking out. I thought that one was a funny part in the in the article. And bottom line is basically take a refrigerated lunchbox with all your stuff inside of it and make sure it's on your carry on. And if you need to inject while you're mid flight, you got to go into the plane bathroom. So it's, yeah, and I hope mean, that your hands are steady. Right, exactly. As you said, there's just not really that much information for the donor perspective. So a lot of these women flock to these groups so that they can get that information. And the process is arduous at best. I mean, just for the screening alone, there's so much that goes into it. For some of the companies between the ages of 19 and 29, no criminal record, not be overweight not be taking any type of drugs. You have to submit your SAT scores, genetic testing, psychological screening, which a lot of times they don't give you those results. There's so much that goes into the process of just being approved to begin with. Yeah. And that doesn't even mean that you're actually going to donate the eggs. You haven't even received any money for all of your time then. As we've been talking, egg donation is a big business, particularly in the United States, though. Then a lot of times there's overseas families and customers, let's say, <laughs> coming to the U.S. to get egg donors from here in the States. Why is that? Egg donation has taken off so much in the U.S. because there are little to no laws and regulations regarding the transfer of these unfertilized eggs for reproductive purposes. Around the world, egg donation is generally a highly regulated industry. It's completely barred in places like China and Germany, Italy, Norway, and paying women to donate your eggs is prohibited in most of Europe as well as in Canada and other nations. But the U.S. has essentially no federal regulations regarding the commercial dealings of eggs and only a few state laws and most of those just refer to the rights of the intended parents or advertising materials, nothing protecting the donors or talking about their right to be informed or paid otherwise. Paris Martineau, writer for Wired, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. As anyone who sits on the couch knows, once you start sitting, it's really hard to get up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like we have that inertia to sort of stay down. And so that starts from a very young age. Joining us now is Brianna Abbott, health reporter for The Wall Street Journal. There's a lot of growing research showing that a lot of sitting, a sedentary behavior increases the risk for people to get diabetes, heart disease, some cancers. I'm sure a lot of people have seen the headlines, sitting is the new smoking, but Americans are starting to sit more and more. And a lot of the blame has uh, to do with computers and our TV screens. What do we know about this? People are definitely sitting more often compared to the last couple of decades. We're sitting more roughly like an hour a day compared to what we used to do, but that still has a pretty big effect. And in terms of what we're actually doing while we're sitting, our television time has actually stayed a pretty constant throughout that time. We're not sitting down watching the TV more, but we are spending more time on our computers. 
Yeah, and that's uh, all, all all sorts of stuff. You can sit there with your laptop or at a desktop. I know researchers were looking into how much time we're sitting. A lot of times people are just spending it on their phones even, but I would kind of lump that into the same category almost because uh, you know our phones are basically our new computers. I think the average sitting hours a day increased from 7 to 8.2 among adolescents and 5.5 to 6.4 hours among adults. Researchers were trying to quantify how much time people are sitting down. What do we know about that study? The interesting thing about that study is that it was actually taken from a larger CDC survey that collects health information on a lot of different aspects, not just sitting in screen time. And so they essentially mine that survey to look for data, how long we're sitting down, how much time we spend on TV, how much time we spend on computers. But the interesting thing is that the survey started in 1999, and they started looking at the data in 2001. So there isn't actually a question that talks about phone usage, just because this happened in 2001, (laughs) people weren't necessarily sitting on their phones all day. And so we have now, because of this, a pretty good idea about how much time we're sitting. But in terms of overall screen time, like that's still a pretty big data point that we don't have from this specific study. And they're finding out that a lot of times that teens are becoming more sedentary than the grownups are. These habits, a lot of the researchers stress that these habits start very young. So they start among adolescents, they start among kids. And then when you start sitting, it's as anyone who sits on the couch knows, once you start sitting, it's really hard to get up. (laughs) Like we have that inertia to sort of stay down. And so that starts from a very young age. And we're just kind of lumping everything together now, but especially when you're binge watching a show, you know, if it's really interesting or compelling, You might stay there for a few extra episodes. And with kids specifically, a lot of times you give them a phone or an iPad and to watch videos so they can be occupied for a little while. But what are they doing? They're sitting there, they're laying down or something. So yeah, these habits do tend to start when you're young. Oh, definitely. And then when they start, especially because it's so easy, it's just sort of hard to break these habits. So that's something that we almost have to train ourselves to do. Like exercising is something that you have to make time for because it's not as built into our schedule. Yeah, I think uh, I laughed at the quote from uh, one of the people that wasn't involved in the study, but just talking about the importance of exercising and is any exercise is better than no exercise and daily exercise is still the best exercise. And they're just uh, basically the point is, is just move around and get be a little more active. Are there any demographic breakdowns on who is sitting more? They have a lot of different demographic breakdowns. They have it by age. They have it by racial group. They have it by socioeconomic status, they have it by education. They definitely took a thorough look at who exactly is sitting more. And the short answer is that everyone is sitting more. Like the whole <laughs> group is sort of escaping this, but there are some groups that are definitely sitting more than others. Men tend to spend more time sitting than women, and people that are obese tend to sit more than other weight groups. That just leads us, it seems pretty obvious, hey, get up, be a little more active, maybe don't spend so much time in front of your computer. Any other suggestions that health experts are giving us? I think that's really what it comes down to. And an interesting thing is that health experts have pointed out that standing desks, though they are a good effort and you should try and stand a little bit more, but standing itself isn't necessarily beneficial compared to moving. Like you shouldn't also be standing for long periods of time. It's really about getting out there, 
walking, taking the stairs. Vigorous exercise is the most beneficial, but it's also been shown that any sort of movement is better than nothing. Brianna Abbott, health reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.